0: Clean seven days, and every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. We're talking about spiritual coverings and how they help fight for you because there's death at work all around us, spiritual death, all kinds of death at work around us. First Peter 4 and 8, And above all things have fervent love one for another. Say this with me, for love will cover a what? Say it again. For love... As you know, I've been teaching for several weeks on spiritual coverings. I actually thought I would knock this out in just two or three weeks. And then when I I got into it, uh, you may have noticed that the first Sunday, I just kind of basically ran through all of these thinking that would be it. And the Holy Spirit said no put the brakes on, take the time to teach it on this because many people do not understand what spiritual coverings are actually all about. A lot of talk about spiritual coverings, very little knowledge as to what they actually do, what makes a spiritual covering. And we've talked about the eight different types of spiritual coverings. We have examined closely four of them, blood coverings, prayer coverings, worship coverings, grace coverings. Last Sunday, I began to talk about the fifth, which is love coverings. I'll finish that today. And over the next several weeks, I will look at coverings of oil, which are coverings of anointing, the different anointings that we find. And then after that, we will talk about coverings of grace. And then we will talk about the eighth type of covering, which is ministry coverings that are in actuality, Comprised of all of the previous seven. It's important that you know how to deal with the enemy because death is at work all around us. You're not going to make death go away. You're not going to make the enemy go away. You can close your eyes and rebuke it in Jesus' name, and there is still going to be death present in the economy, in marriages, in families. Death present in people's health and other circumstances. You need a strategy to deal with the enemy. I'm from Louisiana, and every once in a while I like to tell a Cajun joke. Do you mind if I tell one? This is my heritage, so if you are offended by them, that's my people I'm talking about. I can do that. Now if you don't, if you're not a Cajun, don't don't, you better change it from a Cajun to something else if you tell it. That's the world we live in right now, right? But a group of recruits had been training and were about to graduate from the law enforcement academy. And the lieutenant asked one recruit, Boudreaux, he said, what would be the first thing you would do if you had to arrest your mother-in-law? And Boudreaux's eyes got big and without a moment's hesitation, he said, I'd call for backup. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Everybody needs some backup in their life, and that's what spiritual coverings are about. I want to look a little closer today at love coverings. Last week, I pointed out that it is impossible to understand what a love covering is unless you know how passionately God hates sin. You do hear that part of it preached a lot in churches, generally speaking. Not in all, because some people, as I've mentioned, never mention the word sin and don't want it talked about. It's become politically incorrect in some places to mention anything that has to do with any works of the flesh. And the reason they say that they don't talk about it is because they l- love people. It is important if you're going to understand concepts that are as profound as spiritual coverings, particularly love coverings, that you must also grasp the fundamental concept and principle that I'm describing right now that God fervently and with great passion hates, despises, deplores, abhors, sin. That to many people is an immediate turn off because they say, well, I'm a sinner and therefore if God hates sin, it means he hates me. No, because the other side of what I talked about last week is not only does God hate sin, but he passionately, fervently, ardently, beyond our ability to comprehend it, loves sinners and humanity. Or should I say flawed humanity? Because that would include us too, wouldn't it? Because no matter how long you've lived for God, we still have this treasure in, say it with me, earthen vessels. We're not perfect yet. And love coverings are important in the lives of believers as well as those that are prospective or future believers You have to learn early on in your relationship with God that a church is not perfect. Few of you acknowledge that. It's not. In fact, if it was, they wouldn't let me and you attend. Because we're not perfect and therefore the church would not be perfect anymore if we were attending. Churches are not showcases for saints. They're hospitals for sinners. Nobody in this room is perfect. People are here because they're being helped on a weekly basis through the teaching of the Word of God and the interaction that people have in worship with the Holy Spirit to overcome the weaknesses programmed in our fallen Adamic nature and in our humanity that would otherwise destroy us. I want us to pray right now because what I'm about to preach, as I said, I wish everybody connected with this church was here today to hear. Father, I'm asking you to open your word. When I say open it, I mean with revelation. Peel back the layers of understanding that we can see into the depths of the heart of God and speak to us and help us to be impacted by the profundity of the truth that is contained in your word. And then not only to be impacted by it, but to absorb it and incorporate it into our lives. For you said, if we abide in you and your word abides in us, let your word abide in us, I ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. In John chapter 8, verse 2 through 12, now early in the morning he came again the scripture says, into the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, and if you didn't get what that meant, the next phrase says, in the very act. I have only one question. It takes two to tango. Where was the guy? Now Moses in the law commanded us that we should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, meaning the youngest. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. There are Christians who are nonplussed by what Jesus said. It is a source of consternation to them that Jesus would tell a woman taken in the act of this sin, probably breaking up a family by what was going on. She and the man involved together, it's unlikely in their culture where marriage was prized so highly that at least one of them would not have been married. And Jesus turns to this woman and says, neither do I condemn you. And that is enough right there to upset some believers and cause them to be completely and totally bewildered by what has just happened. What we fail to understand is that There was no need for Jesus to condemn the woman. And I also would make this point before I explain why there was no need for him to condemn the woman. The fact that he did not condemn her does not mean that he condoned what she was doing. And that's where a lot of people mess up. He didn't need to condemn her because you see, like with all of us, She was already condemned by what she had just done. That is to say, not just condemned in her conscience, but she stood condemned in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Matthew 12, 37, for by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. What is that saying in just simple layman's terms? It's simply saying that you're condemning yourself by everything you do that's wrong, and so am I. Don't need somebody to come and condemn us because we've just condemned ourselves, because Indivisible from the choices we make or the consequences of those decisions that will inevitably follow, just like night does day. Amen. The problem, I think, is maybe we watched a little bit too much Perry Mason somewhere in the past. Or who was the other guy? Matlock. In our minds, we picture Christ as the district attorney as we stand before God, and that Christ is there to accuse us for our failures and our shortcomings, but that isn't the way it is at all. In reality, Christ isn't serving in the position of the DA. He's actually more like the defense attorney, saying they did everything, Lord, that they have been accused of, but they have an alibi. Their alibi is that I'm the one that's guilty of everything they did because he took our sins upon himself. And you cannot understand grace until you understand what it meant that Jesus took your sins in his own body and they were nailed to the tree in place of you being put there instead. In the story of the woman before the Pharisees, who were baying for her blood, we clearly come to understand that Jesus, as he is about to make the point, came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. The world, the scripture said, is condemned already. Someone accused accuse him because of this passage of being easy on sin, but he wasn't at all. You see, he knew the world was already condemned. If there was ever anyone that understood the need of a lost and perishing world, Jesus understood it. And if there was ever anyone who had clear in his own mind what his mission and purpose in life was, It's this, John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Did you hear that? Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The world was already condemned. I need a better amen. Many people who are believers fail to realize this, and they think it is our job as the church to stand in judgment of the world around us, they do, and cry out in condemnation of the evil we see. It isn't our task. Part of what leads us to that incorrect or erroneous conclusion that we should be crying out against all of the evil in the world that exists around us is that we have been exposed to the wrong kind of models of church oftentimes in our past. Any of you ever raised in a church where you saw somebody disciplined from the platform? I need, I need a little response here. And oftentimes, the one doing the disciplining needed to be disciplined himself. Oh, I didn't say that, did I? Yeah, I did. Amen. Churches in the past have oftentimes position themselves in this place, knowing that there is an onslaught of evil and an attack of the wicked one against the world. They feel our responsibility is to stand and cry out against the sin that exists in the world. And it is true that we must preach against the evils of the world, but the way they do it sometimes seems to be lacking in the love of God. It's like uh, you're going to hell, praise God, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, amen. Like they're really glad of it. You attend any churches like that in your past? Look at this clip from a sermon. This actually took place. What's this. I Son, don't, don't go
1: to sleep while I'm sometimes. talking. Hey, 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 don't, don't, don't you lay your head back. I, I'm, I'm important. I'm somebody. Now, you might do your English teacher that way. But I'm not teaching English. I'm teaching eternal life here. I love you. You know I love you. Have I convinced you I love you? Uh, yeah. You better, th- you better nod your head yes, all right. Come on, put it up right there. All right? You stay awake and you listen to me. You say, well, he may never come back. Well, he ain't here now. <laughs> where have you been, Mr. Underwood? And I noticed on the calendar I'm supposed to marry y'all. What makes you think I'd marry you? You're one of the sorriest church members I have. You're not worth 15 cents and you want me to marry you to her and you want to marry him and he don't even know where he belongs and you don't even know where you belong. Now, uh, let me tell you all everybody here how much I love these kids.
0: Oh, it just looks like it to me. It just, he <laughs> convinced me it's oozing from every pore. That's often what the world thinks of when they think of the church is somebody that is spending their life and their time to condemn all of them who are wrong. Or everyone who has gone astray, that you got some guy like that, and you ought to see the rest of that sermon. I mean, he, he spends over an hour straightening everybody out. And I'm sure they came back next Sunday for more. Because praise God, he's preaching the truth, isn't he? He's not afraid to preach the old-time genuine truth. And some of us were raised on that kind of stuff. And being exposed to the wrong model of church, we didn't see a whole lot of love. And he can call it whatever he wants to, but I, I didn't see much love in that. If he has a problem with those folk, don't take them before the whole congregation. The Bible said, Matthew 18, go to somebody privately if you've got to talk about an issue with them. Amen. He, he didn't bother to talk to anybody privately, just right in front of everybody. He's going to humiliate them to the point that one of two things are going to happen. Some of them, some of those people that have been exposed to that kind of model are going to fall out of church to never go back again. And they will hate church because they were humiliated before everyone. On the other hand, you will have some people that need acceptance so badly, that are so beaten down by life, that they need approval of people like that guy right there. And they figure if they can measure up and meet his approval, then they have value. And they will drink the Kool-Aid, amen, to be accepted by people like that. Love coverings help shield you from both the judgment and condemnation that you wouldn't ordinarily be exposed to in order that you may grow and overcome the failures of your life. You are human. You are made of the same flesh that I am. And I'll tell you what happens in a church like that. If that guy succeeds in running off everybody except those that are so beaten down that they'll do anything he said, then after a while, what Paul says is, you better take care lest you devour one another. he will They'll keep on until they destroy each other. Yes, they will. And like the two old... Quakers said one time, one guy said to the other, the only two people in the world that are saved are me and thee, and I have my doubts about thee. Amen. And I'm serious. Whenever you preach a legalistic, judgmental message like that, now again, you've got to remember what I preached last Sunday, that God hates with a passion, sin. But how do you deal with it? Do you deal with it by pointing out the flaws to everybody in the building, exposing someone for the mess they've made of their life, calling them from the pulpit? By name, is that how you deal with sin? Or do you need a love covering that will protect you while you're in the process of growing in the grace of God? Amen. Amen. Woe to the person. That's a part of the church like that right there. Or woe to the person that attended the church the lady attended that was also attended by the Pharisees when she was taken in the act of adultery. Because that kind of a church will destroy you. There are people that are looking for an opportunity to pick up stones. And there are a number of reasons why. In psychology, we have what we call defense mechanisms, and these are things that you usually put in place in your life to help defend yourself against circumstances, situations in your life. It's coping mechanisms. It helps you cope, and one of those coping mechanisms is called a reaction formation, and this is what it means, that what you're struggling with yourself is what you despise in somebody else. Because since you can't overcome it, the next best thing is to attack somebody else walking through the same thing, and it makes you feel a whole lot better about yourself now. Amen. Because you destroyed somebody else that had that issue, and surely that ought to prove to God that you don't like that that's going on, even though, Lord help me, I got it in my own life. Amen. Amen. And so oftentimes what you say about somebody else is more revealing about what you're dealing with than it is about them. Love coverings provide a safe place for humanity to come. And if there ought to be a safe place for somebody to get over their stuff, it ought to be the church of the living God. Amen. And that's why I say it's a hospital for sinners and not a showcase for saints. Because the consequence of doing what that guy did right there is you can't go to a church like that until you're 100% perfect. Because they got their magnifying glasses out. Amen, which to me is a whole lot like saying as soon as I get over this cancer, I'm gonna go check in the hospital. It's not those that are whole that need a physician. It's those who are sick. And this is why Jesus did not come to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. He came to help humanity to grow beyond their weaknesses and their failures. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that you condone or excuse or cover up sin either because Proverbs twenty eight thirteen says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Well, I want to ask you a question. If you're attending a church like that, are you going to be more cr- prone to open up and confess your sin in a place like that? Or hide it. What I'm telling you is that that guy, what he just did, actually works against somebody being able to overcome their stuff. If you know you're going to be humiliated for every weakness you have, what you start trying to do is walk around looking like you're perfect. And there's nobody in this building that I know of that's perfect, hello, beginning with this platform, which is why I told you last week that we've got to hate sin. Yes, even the sin in our own lives, but we've got to realize that God loves passionately the sinner and God has not given up on you. He didn't give up on this lady and she was used to being judged by the church. That's what she was getting from the Pharisees. And now she's encountering somebody that says, I'm not going to condemn you because you're already condemned. You know what Jesus just did for that woman? He said, go and sin no more. Knowing that he was not condemning her, and for him to say go and sin no more meant that I'm giving you the authority and the right with me knowing all of your dirty laundry to become the person you were meant to be. Come on out of there and rise up and be the child of God that you were created to be. We see the difference in those who seek to destroy people who are flawed and those who seek to help them. In the story of Noah, who survived the flood, Genesis 9, 20 through 27, and Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard and then he drank of the wine and was drunk. And And people try to explain that. And I, I don't know, honestly, I don't, why he got drunk. I don't know if he felt like like you know, he didn't know that this stuff fermented and And you know, I mean, I got these great, I just don't know, I wasn't there. So don't you leap to a conclusion and say, if Noah can hit the juice, I can too, amen. Because here's what happened to Noah. He got three sheets to the wind. And if you wanna ever mess up your life, you wanna ever look like a fool. (laughs) Give up the control of your life to something like drugs or alcohol. He fell down inside his tent and exposed his own nakedness. And one of his sons, Ham, verse 22, the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders and went backward And covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away. And they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine. And knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said cursed be Cain canaan a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren and he said blessed be the lord the god of Shem, and may canaan be his servant may god in lords jephthah and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may canaan be his servant ham the father of canaan walked in and saw his father in this exposed condition and when he did look at the old man and he went outside and wanted to tell his brothers, just saw the old man. Come on, get a load of this. We're going to go in. I mean, talk about looks stupid. You ought to see the old man now. And he told them what happened. And you know what his two brothers did? They took their coats and put them over their shoulders and walked in backward rather than look at the exposed condition and nakedness of their father And covered their father and would not look at what had been exposed. I know people that go around with a microscope, a magnifying glass, looking for anything they can expose. Amen. And what you do is bring a curse upon yourself. When you do that, because when Noah woke up, he spoke a curse that God honored and he spoke a blessing on those that try to cover the wrongdoing with love. Are you hearing what I'm talking about? Amen. The scripture calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. And one of the most important of all of the lessons I've learned in life is I don't want to be on the side of the accuser. Here's the issue. You can't accuse before God. That's where Satan accuses us, before God. Can you see the devil going before God with a story he made up? God's going to look at him and say, you liar, that's why I cast you out of heaven to begin with. Lying and carrying on like that. No, when the devil accuses us before our father, he's accusing us of what is true. One day I was reading that passage and I, I realized I don't want to be on the devil's side. Rather, it's true or not. if you, Because here's the way we break it down in church. Well, I'm not gossiping. I'm, it was true. I, I'm just telling what really happened. I don't want to be the accuser of the brethren with truth because that is what the devil does. He uses the truth of our failures, the truth of our wrongdoings, the truth of our humanity to expose us to the rest of the world hello somebody but you know what god did god covers us with his love and love covers a multitude of sins amen amen we're not supposed to cover it and hide it from god but if you're looking for God to humiliate you in front of the crowd, that's not the way that God works, amen. And again, I've got to be clear, we're not condoning sin. Like Christ, we must hate the sin, but love the sinner. This is an attitude that is woefully missing in many Christian churches, and for some crazy reason, it seems that the way it breaks down today is that to love the sinner, they think you've gotta love the sin as well and accept it. Or on the other side of the spectrum, to hate the sin, you gotta hate the one doing it, which is why I preach what I did last week. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. Hate the sin, but love the person that's flawed because that is really where the heart of God is. I've seen people who are Christians stand outside abortion clinics and scream and shout and say the worst kinds of names to people that are going in. Can I preach right now? Well, I'm going to. if If I have to preach by myself, I'm going to. Because a lot of churches won't even raise the issue of abortion anymore. And I gotta tell you, 60 million babies have been aborted in this nation since Roe versus Wade. Do you realize how many 60 million people are? One of those could have been the one that found a cure for cancer. Somebody else might have found the cure for MS. You don't know what we are losing, but the lie of the devil is. It's just fetal tissue. You've even got political opponents that campaign and political platforms that are built upon this lie of the devil. And you've got churches that buy into all of this stuff too. I'm preaching a lot better than you're responding right now. Oh, pastor, you can't say that because it's a right. It's every woman's right, really, really. Let's see if it is when you stand before God. I've got to talk to you from my heart. But on the other hand, I am not for the attitude that I see either where Christians want to bomb abortion centers and shoot doctors that perform them and shout hate at people that are going into the clinic. Neither one of those are the right attitude and the right position. You got to love the woman walking in the door and when she comes out as well. That's why if I'm preaching to anybody that's ever been inside one of these places, I love you, God loves you. Doesn't mean that he loved what you did no more than he loves any of the wrong that I've done in my life. But a church is meant to love people to recovery and help people do what's right. We live in a crazy world, a crazy world where anything goes. And don't dare preach me the Bible, that outdated book from years ago that has no application to these modern times in which we live. That's honestly what some people think. Did you hear about the spectacle in Seattle? In Seattle, they found out they were fast tracking a group for a nonprofit status, satanic clubs for kids in school. But the Christian clubs had been put on the back burner and struggling to get their papers for the last three or four years. What is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. We've got a world that hates Christianity. I'm talking about the powers that be in the world. But the world needs this message because just telling somebody things are okay doesn't mean it's okay. And when you're laying on your bed in the middle of the night staring at a dark ceiling and your conscience begins to tell you it wasn't right what you did, listen, you gotta live with the results of those consequences and this is where the church steps in to wrap its arms of love around you and say honey don't listen to the lies out there in the world because the devil will accuse you and talk to you and and tell you lies but i want you to know that while god may not be pleased he loves you We may get picketed tomorrow the way I'm preaching right now. I finished preaching last Sunday in the 1015 service and when I walked out, one of our ladies followed me and she had tears in her eyes. She said, I'm going to cry. And I said, what's the problem? And she said, Pastor, I worked for a man that was gay and he and his friends have been to this church. And he said, she said, he told me this is the only church he knows of in this city where people still stand for the biblical position but don't make the people that are doing wrong feel hated in the process. That's what I'm talking about. I said, that's what I'm talking about. You gotta cover people's wrong. You gotta lay yourself down across people's wrongs and evils and the sins they've done and committed in their lives, but you still gotta love them. You don't go outside, ah, ha, 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 look what I saw. You don't make a laughing stock out of people. You don't make them the point of your antagonism. You don't, you don't heap scorn upon them because the one you're ridiculing, Christ loved enough to die for. And, and we've got to love humanity. We've got to love humanity. Look at what God describes himself as doing in Ezekiel 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. And he goes on to say, you were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. But when I will pass by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts reformed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and I looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing and the, the, the Hebrew word there literally means garment over you and covered your nakedness. I'm talking about love coverings. Yes, I swore an oath to You and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you with. And he goes on to describe the ornaments and the jewels and the wealth that he gave, and, and how they ate the finest of the pastries and honey and oil and became exceedingly beautiful. And the scripture says they succeeded to royalty. For your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed upon you, says the Lord God. You know what that's describing? It's not just describing Israel's birth. It's describing mine and yours too. It's describing what happened because the enemy used us up. And when he got through with us, cast us aside and had no pity on us. I'm talking to some of you right now that one day Jesus walked by you just like he did me and found you polluted in your sin and said, live, live. The enemy left you to die, but God said, live. The enemy left you to perish in a nightclub, in a bar room, in a crack house. The enemy left you to perish in a courtroom with a broken marriage and a life that was in pieces. But God walked by and God said, Live. <laughs> live. God spoke life and some of us are here today. Had it not been for God walking by, that would have been the end of our story right there. Some of you would have died in prison, but God walked by and said live, 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 live. Nobody else cared for you, but God did. Nobody else saw any value in you. Nobody else saw the gift God had hidden inside of you nobody else saw the potential everybody else walked by and was willing to let you stay there and die but god saw something in you because he was the one that put it there in the beginning and after the enemy got through using you up god was still there to say i love you anyway come on live live let me wash you up let me cleanse you let me baptize you let me fill you with my spirit Let me wash you in my blood. I've got a future for you. I've got plans for you. You think your life has ended, but it's just getting started. It's going to begin all over at the cross. Just about the time the devil thought he had used you up. I'm gonna show him that there's still a lot of good left on the inside. I'm not done with you yet. I'm not finished. I'm not finished. You see, God doesn't give up. God doesn't quit. God doesn't walk away. The enemy will walk away, unplug the machine, and walk out of the room and turn off the lights as he's going, and laugh and say, it's all over now, but not God. God will say, I know how many abortions you had. I know how many years you spent in prison. I know how many marriages you've been through. I know what's going on in your life right now. I know the struggle you've had with drugs or pornography, but I'm not done with you yet. I'm going to cover you with my garments. I'm going to let you recover. I'm going to bring you out of the mess you're in. Yes, I had to reach way down in the miry clay, but wait till I get done with you because you're going to be beautiful. I'm talking to some people right now. You're beautiful beyond description because God's love has shined upon your life. Oh, forgive me, I'm sorry. I feel like preaching this morning. I might just be preaching to myself, but nobody thought I was going anywhere. A little boy raised in Lake Charles, Louisiana with marsh mud between his toes. Nobody gave me a chance, but God passed by. The Lord passed by and said, live, amen, live, 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 live. I'm saying that to somebody here this morning. Get up and live, get up and live. Live. Get up and live. Don't wallow there in that mess any longer. Don't stay there abandoned by the enemy. Get up and live. God spread his garment over us. And Ezekiel 16 and 8 said that when he did, he entered into a covenant. (laughs) People may have made you promises, but God will never break any he's made to you. Friends may have promised you the moon. Some guy may have promised you everything in life and and did nothing but use you. Some lady may have made you promises and broke every one of them. But I just want to tell you right now, God keeps his covenants, amen. God keeps his promises. And in verse 10 through 14, God said, then he blessed her, blessed her. And it describes the jewels and the Armani and Gucci and, and everything else she was wearing and she's styling and profiling and I mean, she's got it together. and all of a sudden she's all of that and, and she's walking down the road and, and the guy that actually cast her off looks at her and says, "Hey, mama, how you doing today?" And she falls for one of these guys and betrays the one that loved her. Do you know even then God did not walk away from Israel? i got to talk to you. Love covers a multitude of sins. None of us have got what we deserve. Grace doesn't give you what you deserve. It gives you what you don't deserve. It gives you blessing and favor that you don't have a right to ask for. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. There's something I need to say about this because there she is all dolled out and looking fine. She's smoking, man. I mean, she's got it together. Look at her. I mean, she's, she's she like she just stepped right out of a showcase window. And what's those shoes with the red things on the bottom? Of some of you ladies... Uh, help me out yeah they're red bottoms what's the name of those well you ladies know what they are some of you guys don't but if i was you i'd go in your closet her closet and get out them shoes and start looking at the bottom those ones with the red bottom unless she got a can of paint and painted it herself i can tell you they cost some money amen you hear what i'm talking about (laughs) they cost some money And she gets to thinking all of this is because of her. I want to tell you one of the most important things I've ever learned in life is never believe that the blessings of God came upon your life because you deserve them. And at the same time, if you're walking through a dry place in life, never believe that because there's no blessings there that it's because you don't deserve any. Neither situation is right. You see, when you're in the middle of the struggle, you get feelings, don't you? And you get to wearing all this nice stuff, Louboutin, Lou, Lou, Louboutins. I knew I'd uh uh-huh. I don't buy any for my wife, but I've heard about them, amen. <laughs> I got a red pair, a can of red paint, though, amen. I'm <laughs> no, just joking with you. Louboutins, Amen. Samson made the mistake of going by his feelings. He's actually in bed with a prostitute. And the enemy comes. And you know what he does? Gets up out of that bed. And and this is what is astonishing. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he goes to the gates and rips them right out of their foundations. And then carries them up the hill. Doesn't just cast them aside, he carries them up the hill to add further humiliation to the Philistines and throws them down. You see, oh, Samson got to thinking something. The problem with Sammy boy is he thought because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, God was accepting everything in his life. Don't you ever believe that because you're blessed, it is indicative of the fact that everything in your life is okay? On the other hand, don't let the devil lie to you when you're not blessed and you know you're doing right. Don't let the devil lie to you and tell you God forgot you. Oh no, you're just walking through a dry place and you're getting ready to come out on the other side more blessed than you ever have been. You say, well, explain to me. I'll take a couple of minutes and do this. Explain to me. Why is it a man like Samson could have the Spirit of the Lord come upon him? It's because of this. When, if in your hunger for God, you begin to discover, to discover fundamental principles upon which the kingdom of God is built and life operates, and then you lose that hunger for God and your life drifts away from God, God does not undo those principles you learned during the process in which you were hungry. He doesn't change the locks on the door. Hello, somebody. And that is the same in the natural world in which we live. Saved or unsaved, gravity, a law, still works for both. The law of aerodynamics works for both. The law of thermodynamics, all of the various laws that exist in this natural world do not change just because you decide to become a Christian or not be a Christian. They still work in similar fashion. They still work in the kingdom of God too. What I'm trying to say is stop living your life based upon your feelings. If you're getting blessed, don't stop reaching for more of God. Don't feel like you got a corner on God, you own the franchise. Because if you're not careful, the devil will lie to you and say, you don't need to pray anymore. You don't need to read your Bible anymore. Look how blessed you are. Oh no, the more I'm blessed, the more I need him every day of my life. And this lady forgot about God. I close with this. Love coverings don't condemn and destroy you because of weakness in your life. But they don't leave you where you are either. They help point you to Christ and to wholeness. Paul gives us insight into how A church that truly represents the heart of of God, which hates sin but loves the sinner, should minister to its own members and their humanity. Ephesians 6 and 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted God's church is about restoration. Put your stones down. You hear what I'm saying? Throw the rocks down that you're going to use to bash someone else in for the wrong they're doing. Throw those away and begin to restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Back to the little video I showed you. Didn't see much gentleness in that. Mm Mm-mm. And you also must consider yourself, seven quick principles, how to be an effective love covering. Number one, examine yourself first. Before you go to tell somebody else what they need to do, take a good look in the mirror into your own heart. You'd be surprised that there might need to be a little housekeeping done at home. Number two, then he tells us we must confront in love. That is, you don't go silent. You don't quit preaching the Bible. You don't because it's politically correct to not mention things. And oh, somebody may call you a hater and a bigot if you do mention things. You don't go silent. What you do is you confront, but in love, preach the word of God. And then number three, always remember who the enemy is. It's amazing that some people think the enemy is people. They're not. They're the victim of the enemy. Just thought I'd remind you of that. Amen. You don't know what they did to hurt me. I understand. Their victimhood is now being transferred to you. But they're still victims. They're not the enemy. Number four, you can help somebody by helping them see more clearly. Because one reason that people do what they do is they don't see the consequences associated with poor choices. I learned a long time ago in counseling never when somebody comes in and asks me, Pastor, what should I do about this? Don't answer that question. Because they're not going to listen to you. I'm preaching better than you're responding right now. You say, "I I would. No, you wouldn't. People come into the office not to ask what they should do. They come in hoping I will agree with what they've already decided to do. Amen. So you know what I do? Without even answering that question about what they should do, I outline their options. You've got these options. You've got four different options. This is, this is what you can do in response to the decision you're facing. You can do this, and, or you can do this, or you can do this, or you can do this. Now, let me help you think through each one of these options. And I take option number one, and I walk with them through that option to its logical and foreseeable conclusion. Then option number two, do the same thing. Option number three, option number four. And then I lean back in my chair And I put my hands like this and I say, now, which one of those four things do you want to have happen to you? Talking about consequences. Because it helps them see that every decision has associated and connected to it some consequences. Ah, hear what I'm talking about, young people. You throw a rock into a little form pond, the ripples don't stop right there. They just keep getting bigger and bigger. Always consequences. So you help them see more clearly. Number five, to be effective, we must be willing to walk with them through the process. And it is a process and you will get tired in walking with people through recovery. I can tell you because I've been there and they will promise you the moon and they'll want to do right and then they'll fall and get up again and and you got to start all over and, and that's often the process. But you know why I say hang in there? Because God hung in there for you. That's why. God hung in there for me. Number six. Then help restore them to usefulness in the kingdom of of God again. Because what the enemy wants to tell you is that from this day forward, because you messed up, you'll never have another place of usefulness ever again. You have to sit there and spend the rest of your life in silence. Let me say this in conclusion. Lord, I hate that clock up on that wall. (laughs) Amen. And you know one of the things that people do when they make a mistake or they fall into a situation they want to move somewhere else. I'm going to go over here because nobody knows me. They don't, but they will. Because if you don't fix it, no matter where you are, there you are. You know where it's best to overcome something? In a family. Because guess what families do? They may not like what you're doing, but they love you anyway. And it's like me and my brothers when we were growing up. I'd jump on them, they'd jump on me, but let somebody else jump on them and see what happens. Amen. You need a family that's got your back. And number seven. Always keep strict confidences. A church that is going to be a love covering has to learn not to talk about everything they've heard. And some people have the spiritual gift of gossip. And others have the corollary, the spiritual gift of suspicion. And between the gift of suspicion and the gift of gossip... (laughs) You don't stand much of a chance. And it's like Mildred in the little country town I one time told you about. The town drunk got. Saved And his name was Joe. And it was one of them little bitty towns with one red light. And Mildred was a town gossip. And there was only one little church there. And when Joe came and got saved, Mildred, who was a member of that church, said, He won't last long. That's Joe, the alcoholic. He'll be right back where he was. You just mark my words. I I used to love to hear old folks say that. Mark my words. I don't know what that means, but mark my words. Amen. And so sure enough, Joe went to get a haircut and they only had one little strip ball in the, in the little town and it was right there by the red light and they had a liquor store there with a saloon and, and they had a little restaurant on the other side and they had a shop and a little stop and go kind of convenience store and Joe went in to get a haircut and the only place he could park was right in front of that liquor store and here come Mildred driving by. And her face lights up. She can't wait to get home because you know what they say, television, telephone, and you said that, I didn't, amen. I led you right into it, though. I, forgive me. I had sense enough not to touch that one, Ephraim. Sorry, I, I'm just pulling your leg. Amen, men have the gift of gossip, too. And so Mildred went home, got on the phone, and she was calling every. I told y'all Joe wouldn't last. I drove by the bar, and there's Joe's truck parked right out in front. And word got back to Joe, so that Friday night, Joe got in his pickup truck, went and parked in Mildred's driveway, and walked home. And went and got his truck Saturday morning. <laughs> you want a story? We'll fix one. Amen. <laughs> Keep strictest confidences. I want to say this so that you know this, because I have people here in this church that have told me from time to time, Pastor, I've got things that I'm, I'm working on. I'd love to come and talk to somebody, but I'm afraid. I've, I've had my stuff put out before everybody in the community in the past. I want to tell you right now that many, many years ago, I told our staff The one thing that will cause you to be immediately dismissed from this church staff is if anybody ever comes to you to talk to you and confess and confide something they need help with, and you walk out of that office and tell one living soul, you will not be on this church staff anymore. Because we can't help people grow if we can't help people through their problems. Amen.